Hello, hello, hello. This is the Out of Bounds Podcast, and my name is Adam Jabber. Uh, this is take number two, and uh, we have a wonderful episode for you today. Probably my favorite episode uh, that we've recorded in a long time. I feel like I say that a lot, but there's a lot of good conversations happening now, but uh, this one is is very cool. Uh, John Watson's on the show. John is the founder of The Radivist. Um, and which is recently sold to the pros closet. So we kind of talk about that sale. We talk about his experience and why he, why he started photographing bikes, why he started getting into the bike scene, the bike industry as a whole, um, kind of transitioned from being an architect into creating a niche fixie geared website. And then he, uh, has transitioned into the Radivist, which is a fully encompassing bike website, which includes photographs of, of like cool old bikes and new bikes and just bike scenes and cool stories. And, and I don't know, it's just a great place to tell stories and kind of put information out there from the cycling world. Um, I've been a big fan of John's work for a long time. This has been an interview that I've, I've wanted to do for quite a while. Um, kind of watched him from afar. Just, I don't know the dude just does nice work. Uh, what kind of sparked this conversation was I saw that he had posted online about doing some psychedelics and I was interested in having that conversation with him. So at the end of the conversation, we kind of get into that stuff. We also talk about uh, Leo Wilcox's FKT attempt of the AZTR, um, the controversy behind that, all of that stuff, the sale of the Radivist to the pros closet, what that means for John, uh, what his life looks like now. And a whole bunch of other stuff. So I hope you guys enjoy it. This is really, it's a great episode. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, what else can I say? Uh, obviously, subscribe to the YouTube. That's kind of what we're pushing hard right now. I think a lot of these episodes, especially this one, because the audio is great and the visual is great and it's super clear, are really well served on the YouTube side of things as well as on the audio. So subscribe to the YouTube. Watch the episodes. They're going to come out every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. So book that on your calendars, put it in like, you know, you know, you guys all use your calendars and you're all super organized, put the podcast 7 PM Eastern time, YouTube on your calendar. Audio versions will usually drop in the morning. We'll try to be a little more on it as far as an exact time on those. But realistically the YouTube 7 PM Eastern standard time is what we're committing to. It's also gear reviews and all kinds of other stuff. Um, obviously shop at www.outofcollective.com. We've got cool blog posts. Uh, we've got gear, we've got merch. We got the whole nine that you can kind of shop and support what we're doing here at the out of collective. Three other shows you can listen to big stick energy, the pursuit and coffee and van chats with John Croom. Uh, so do all those things. It's a lot of shit to ask for, but it is what it is. Uh, two sponsors for today. First being, Onyx Backcountry. Onyx Backcountry has been a sponsor of the show for quite a while now, and they're one of my favorites. They're one of my favorites to work with because they provide access to the outdoors. Um, they are the ultimate offline GPS hiking and ski map destination. Um, it's really easy. You just download the, download the Onyx app. It's like 30 bucks for the whole year, $25, I think it is, if you use promo code out of bounds, uh, and it's great. There's all kinds of different stuff that you can use. There's slope angle. There's weather pat. Like the whole thing is right here. Ethan's scrolling through the little bit. So if you're on the YouTube version, you can see Ethan knows how to scroll. There's our friend Meredith. Um, there's Vasu. All kinds of people involved. Um, they also put out great content on the YouTubes as well. So check out what they're doing. 
Huge fan of OnX. You can go to www.onxbackcountry.com. Uh, start a free trial or just go ahead and purchase the premium version right away uh, for $29.95 per year for the full unlimited access premium version of OnX Backcountry and then save 20% off your purchase with code out of bounds. Um, and then... We have Sawa Chemp. Sawa Chemp is a sponsor. Ethan's really fast on the trigger today. Switching over tabs. Just kidding. He's not switching over fast. Um, <laughs> Sawa Chemp uh, is one of our original sponsors. They're amazing. I can't tell you enough about how much I enjoy their product. The salves, salves, whatever we're calling them, the rub-on stuff. Especially that spice one is chef's kiss. That stuff is so good. Peppermint, cayenne, and arnica. I don't even know what arnica is, but it's great. I use it all the time, especially like sauna. If you're a sauna person, put that on after a sauna or before a sauna. Just don't touch your eyes. And it'll be the best thing you do for your body all day, like by far. They also have full spectrum olive oils, which is a crazy thing to offer, and they have it. Uh, they have Sawatch sticks. They have... Uh, just your traditional CBD uh, tinctures. They they have the whole deal. So check out www.sowwatch.co uh, and use promo code out of bounds to save 15% off on your purchase of the very best in CBD product. Um, so with that, we'll just get into our episode with John Watson. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Be sure to check out theradivist.com. Uh, and check out everything that John does. You can find him on the gram at John Prawley and uh, enjoy the episode. John, tell people who you are, what you do, a little bit about yourself, and then we can kind of take it from there. Yeah, um, my name is John Watson. Um, I'm a North Carolina boy currently living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've kind of lived all over the country um, and I started a cycling blog back in like 2005 um, that was called probably is not probably. And so for obvious reasons, I rebranded and um, I think it was like 2011 to the Radivist, which is a combination of radical, you know, but radical can mean different things to different people. Um, and atavism, which is kind of like the inherent nature of things to play. It's like a throwback to like old times when humans would sit around a campfire and tell stories Um and, you know, going off of my friend uh, Benji, who started Polar's advice, you know, you never want to start a company using like an already existing word. So that felt like radical atavism would be a cool platform to kind of share the experience of cycling in the outdoors with a bunch of people. Yeah. Can yeah. I ask how how that's kind of progressed over time? Because now you look at it's almost like a polished. It is a polished product at this point. Right. Kind of have the formula down. What you guys put out into the world is not necessarily curated content, but it's, it's very, I don't know, it's detailed and there seems to be a system to it now. Was it like that in the yeah, beginning? How did yeah. you kind of work that out? Yeah. I mean, and I think there's, you know, curation, I think has like a negative spin thanks to like Pinterest and Tumblr and like <laughs> Instagram and stuff, but like curation is a real thing. Like, yeah, um, there's a lot of cycling content and product out there that we don't talk about. And that's part of our curation um, process. So it's, it, like there's no grand scheme or like, uh, you know, we don't have our, our, our blood, blood cult Illuminati, like, you know, <laughs> seances that we do to determine what, what it is we cover. Um, it's ultimately kind of like 
we, myself and Josh Weinberg, the editor that we hired uh, last year, have our finger on the pulse when it comes to like the cycling that we feel like our audience um, is in line with. And the audience has changed, you know, so 2005, 2006, it was mostly about fixed gears, living in a city, um, still like vintage road bikes. We still did bike camping trips, you know, before this term bike packing came around in like 2008. Um, We were, you know, just kind of like non-competitive enjoyers of casual cycling. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've raced, you know, XC mountain bike races. I've raced cyclocross, um, never done a road race, but that's not really my jam. Um, and so I, I kind of have like a, a, a experience in cycling that I think has like created this like following where like other like-minded individuals kind of like look for us, look at us for like entertainment from like where they're going to go ride their bike to like what, what they're going to build next. So, um, I don't, I don't know like what the proper way to, to, I don't know if we have our finger on the pulse or I don't know if we're like, you know, pumping the pulse ourselves. I think it's like a mixture of both, but basically we just try to do things that are going to stoke people out, give the platform to people who might not have a, a platform to share their stories, uh, which sometimes bites us in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As we'll talk about later, I'm sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, just basically just having this really accessible platform that everyone can view for free that will show them cool places to ride your bike, cool ways to build your bike, and the other movers and shakers in the industry that we feel like deserve a little bit of a spotlight. Yeah, yeah, and I think you guys have done an incredible job at doing that over the past decade or so, however long it's been. It's it's crazy because it's it is it's very unique. It's like old vintage bikes, but it's also very current bike reviews and I don't know beautiful photography and tra- like you guys have like this fully like this all encompassing network, I guess. And the it's very clear to me at least who the audience is, right? And it's people that like just want to ride cool shit and look at cool shit, and that's stuff that I don't think very many other outlets are doing. Um, so I don't know, that part's been very interesting to me following along. I mean, I started following you guys personally a while ago and I just thought this is something that I identify with. So it'd be cool to like kind of have a chat about what, I don't know how that even came about. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was an architect when I was living in New York, when I started the website and, um, you know, I grew up in the punk and hardcore scene in North Carolina, going to, going to shows. I grew up skateboarding and surfing so as a Grom, you know, like a little kid that that his mom would drop him off at the beach with with a <laughs> skateboard and a surfboard. And, you know, later I ended up riding like my beach cruiser down to the beach with my surfboard and skateboard. But like you go into these bike shop or or sorry, like surf shops and skate shops and there's all these magazines around, you know, like videos playing, you know, the 411 videos were, were awesome. They were kind of raw and gritty. All the Tom Yeddo like foundation videos toy machine jump off a building like all of these like seminal moments within skateboarding and even like a lot of the stuff with surfing really shaped my uh perception of like how sports uh should be documented and there was just nothing that existed like that for cycling it was all like mm. lycra lycra clad you know <laughs> basically crit racers <laughs> and like you know, just, just every, everyone was so focused on like competition Yeah, and I was surrounded by like a really beautifully vibrant culture of, of kind of all 
all sexual orientations, all races, New York City, you know, from like Jamaican guys riding Eddie Merck's track bikes to right. frame builders living out in Brooklyn, building randonnée and, and mountain and BMX bikes um, and just kind of everything in between. You know, these alley cat races were, were super fun, kind of like a choose your own adventure style, like unsanctioned, really accessible. You don't have to throw down money to race. You just run what you brung. Um, and in that way, I think racing does a really good job of like cultivating a community, you know, like we used to throw like kind of cutty illegal cyclocross races. And it's funny because like one of the girls that showed up at one of our races in Austin that we threw is now racing professional UCI cyclocross. <laughs> and like the first race she ever did was like our super stupid kind of obnoxious, yeah. you know, free cross race. So I just, I, for me, it's, it's, it's been like a two, two part, uh, growth where, we're documenting a part of cycling that the industry is kind of like, or at the time had like kind of forgotten about or hadn't really talked about. Yeah. We're also kind of creating a space for community. Um, I don't really throw as many events now as I, I have in the past, but mostly because of COVID and also just because I'm so busy. But, you know, those two things from the Peel sessions in Brooklyn, which was like a weekly meetup for guys wanting to like ride track bikes and like learn like tricks on track bikes to like our, our beat the clock races and like campouts in Austin. And then like some of the stuff we did in LA too, with just group rides, you know, having a group ride on black Friday with like, you know, 40 people going up into the mountains or swift camp out, you know, taking a bunch of people that had never been bike camping before out on an overnighter. Um, so that's kind of been our thing. Like we've, we've talked about frame builders and like, you know, we were riding cyclocross bikes on dirt roads and, and single track kind of before the whole gravel bike thing. Uh, we, we used to ride from Brooklyn to Philly with old Revelate bags in like, mm. you know, 2008, 2009. And, you know, no one had really, we just called it bike touring or bike camping. <laughs> right. Um, so it's like just kind of the, that that's been the progression is like, you know, mostly non-competitive, mostly steel oriented with kind of like a vintage uh, you know, slant on some of our, our stuff. Uh, we'll always cover basket bikes like fun rides with swimming holes, like that kind of thing, you know, cycling should be fun and it should be enjoyable. Um, and it should be, you know, accessible to all people. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I come mostly from the ski side of things and I guess, I don't know, I spend a lot of time riding my bike and I'm, I don't know, I own a bike shop and all this shit. So like, it, it's interesting to me, the differences between those two sports where they're similar in a lot of ways. Right. But cycling has this accessibility aspect that is like totally different than the ski side of things. Right. Like you can get a rad yeah. old bike or I guess maybe less. So now everything's fucking expensive and crazy and we're in a totally different universe, but stuff is accessible, right? Like you can, if you have a bike, you can exactly like you said earlier, you run what you brung and you can kind of do the thing, right? Like it doesn't, the gear matters almost less than it does in a lot of these other kind of niche sports. And it's like, it's simple, right? It's like, you have a bike, you ride the bike. It's like that's, that's as easy yeah. as, as it is. And I, I don't think it yeah. needs to be more complex than that. Yeah. I mean, like you look at the guys and the girls that started mountain biking in Marin and in Crested Butte, it's like jeans, a <laughs> right. chambray shirt, cowboy boots and a beach cruiser. And, and look where we are now. And uh, yeah. I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And it's like a, a moment of like pause especially the comparison between skiing, because we live in a ski town now. <laughs> I never really skied growing up. And you can always kind of tell what kind of financial background someone came from when they're like, 
Yeah, so I started skiing when I was like two, and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> no, sorry. When I was two, we were eating like the same, you know, like noodles and shake Parmesan cheese with like, you yeah. know, barely paying our mortgage or our rent or whatever it was my parents were doing to raise us. Like we didn't have that kind of financial uh, liquidity to buy, you know, four or five ski passes and four or five like downhill setups, you know, it's, yeah. it's a very expensive sport. Um, and, you know, cycling can be an expensive sport, but like you said, I mean, you used to be able to buy like a vintage stump jumper for like 400 bucks. If yeah. that like two fifty. throw a basket on it. There's your touring bike. Boom. Easy. Right. So, and I think that's the biggest challenge is like not getting caught up in the like consumerism uh, of, of cycling media in particular, you know, um, yeah. it's a, it's definitely one of those things where, you know, people want to see reviews of modern bikes and people also want to see reviews of old bikes. And we just try to keep that balance in mind as we're laying out our content strategy for the month. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's one of the things I kind of wanted to talk about too, is how you lay out and how you spend your time. Right. Because I mean, you're running a business, you're, there's a lot going on. How do you find yourself balancing your time personally, like actually getting on the bike? Because I guess the more time I spend in here, the more I find myself struggling to make time to go do things outside. And I think we're finally kind of locking up a schedule. So I'm always interested to hear how other people manage that, especially when you're creating content, you're managing content ahead of time and you're doing reviews and you're doing all this stuff. How, how do you manage that? Man, that's so it was, I, I should say like, this is a, it's a completely different, paradigm now that we sold the Radivist to the pros closet than right. it was before. And I'm sure we'll talk about like the whole acquisition and all that. Cause that, that was a really um, eye-opening experience into the world of like, basically like, you know, venture capitalist funded enterprises and, and how mergers and acquisitions happen. Yep. But for so prior to that, there was no balance. Like there was no, <laughs> like, you know, it was like, I mean, like just now, I think my emails are down to like maybe 40 unread, but back before this merger happened, it, it was chaotic. I mean, uh, my uh, partner, Carrie was designing our apparel and our merch and man and shipping everything out. I was basically doing everything else. And so I was getting submissions from people from all over the world and, and just trying to like lay it out in a way where, you know, maybe you don't have a bunch of gravel bike re reviews, like back to back, you know, you try to sprinkle in some mountain biking with some like vintage stuff. And you just want to keep the, keep the content varied and, and uh, diverse. And so it, it wasn't until I sold the company out of basically just like exhaustion, like how, you know, doing it as a one person show for so long, just it, you just get burnt out. And uh, especially when you have like competitors kind of like copying every single thing you do, like you really start to feel helpless. You know, we we pay every single person that's put pen to paper for our site or, or photos or whatever. And when you, when you see other sites that aren't paying people and they're just like going after you super hard, you're like, Oh, this, this kind of sucks. So it felt nice to have a, to have a company like the pros closet acknowledge the radius because <laughs> So much of the bike industry like <laughs> won't acknowledge us like they'll 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 post about stories that we've documented or stories that we started Why? and won't even because it's like it's just ego stuff man it's like 
Ugh. You know, if we find something cool on another website, like we'll credit that website. And, it, and yeah, but like, there's just, you know, I don't even want to get into it. There's a lot of stuff <laughs> that behind the scenes that's very, very frustrating. But, you know, the pros closet, um, they, you know, they're an awesome company. They sell used bikes for those who aren't aware. Um, and they sell some new bikes and, you know, their whole re-commerce model, I think is really important for sustainability. Um, so like if, you know, talking about getting into bikes, say you've got two grand and you really want to get a hardtail, there's nothing in stock in your bike shops. TPC's got that kind of stuff in stock and it's like got a warranty behind it. So for me, like I've, we've had a few offers on the table in the past from other media companies wanting to buy us, but it just never felt right. Yeah. Um, I didn't want to be beholden to any specific brand. I didn't want to be beholden to any kind of, um, I don't know, just like the new model of everything being behind a paywall. Like, that's just not, that's not my thing. Like I said, man, I grew up going into skate and surf shops, watching free videos and reading free magazines. And I kind of want that experience for, for young cyclists too. So TPC was great because I've got an awesome boss. His name's Matthew. He used to work for Rafa, Gear Patrol, Rivian, like all these publications. And he really helped grow Huckberry, you know, helped yeah. grow their, their like online web presence. So he's got a, a whole series of tools that he's implemented on our, uh, on, our, on our side on the Radivist because he's also responsible for TPC's magazine or their blog and all their marketing stuff. So he's got his hands full. We're kind of like these like redheaded stepkids that I feel like people don't really know what to do with us yet, but he's like, okay, you guys are going to use this tool to figure out like where your traffic's coming from, where it's going. You're going to use this tool to organize where, what your content's doing. And here's a bunch of other like little tricks and tips that I've learned over the past, however many years he's been doing it to keep you running smoothly with like SEO stuff. So that's, that's always the place where I've been the weakest. Like I think photos, great writing. Eh, it's okay. Like my writing in particular is not the greatest, but I, I feel like I can hold my own with photos. I think I can, I can obviously curate content. Um, but when it comes down to like growing the site, making it into something bigger, that's where I really needed help. So it felt like a lifeline was being thrown to me. Mm. when they approached me last June and said they wanted to buy the website. So, yeah, I guess that was kind of one of, that was like my next question was how, how that transition has been, if it's been weird, if, cause I guess when you see my first thought when that happened was pink bike, right? Like that, that was kind of like oh, yeah. pink biked outside. Yeah. And now it's like the content is still good right now, but how long is it going to be okay for like it? When is yeah. that going to fall off? Like, I think the other shoe is going to drop on that. And then all of a sudden it's going to be behind a paywall. It'll be shittier and it'll be much more like, here's the content we want to put out. All the other shit is useless to us now. Right. So I kind of, yeah. I, I was not stressed, but I'm like, okay, I don't want to see this be the same as what that might be and what outside traditionally does. Yeah. You know, and, 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 you know, uh, they, I'm not going to say much about that because like, I just don't, I don't want to like go online and shit talk stuff, but yeah, right. Uh, we, we had an offer and we declined it for some of those reasons that you've pointed out. Um, so, you know, when TPC came on, they were very much like, we don't want to change the Radivist. Awesome. You are the Radivist. So we're buying your site 
your branding, your basically your readership, and we're buying you. So it's kind of because if I just like left, I mean, I think Josh at this point would do a great job taking over the site. And I don't really think I, I mean, I think the content would, would stay pretty much the same. But, you know, that that's been the hardest part about the whole transition is like, how do you divorce your identity from a brand that you sold? Because, you know, I'm I like people still think I'm the Radivist. And I'm like, well, no, technically I'm, I'm John Watson and I'm the editor or the director of special projects at the Radivist. Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the things in the early conversation that I said to TPC was I, I want to be in control of the content. And yes, I understand that, like, you know, to grow a site, you have to look at metrics and numbers and ha and have that inspire. And I, I'm totally fine doing the review of like the, you know, we just posted a Revel Rover review, which is like yeah, a carbon right. gravel bike. Like we and we've always posted reviews of carbon gravel bikes. It's not like it's changed at all. Um, and people want to see that stuff. But I still need to have these like soul nourishing pieces, you know, uh, whether it's like. Alexandra Huchin talking about wanting to take racing seriously, or it's, you know, a woman talking about mental health issues uh, and, and her like exploits riding a bike. Like th these stories are important. They're the soul of the site and they're not going to go anywhere. Um, I mean, I, like, I think the biggest changes that people have seen are we're doing a newsletter now, which I think is really smart for us to wanting, wanting to grow the site. And that's important. And that's, that was, you know, my boss's call. He was like, we need to have a newsletter. And I'm like, okay, cool. Cause part of this for me is a learning process. Like I want to learn how to grow a media company. Um, and I, you know, obviously we have some TPC ads on the site and sometimes we'll feature a bike that comes in off the lineup. Uh, whether it's like an old Bruce Gordon touring bike that's like listed for $1,100 or a bike that's relevant to previous reviews, like a Santa Cruz chameleon or like an all city or something like that. Um, you know, I'll post about it and give a reason why I've shared it. And, you know, yes, we have our, we have, we have goals that we're trying to reach. And that, that includes like, uh, you know, how the Radivists and TPC are going to work on projects together. So, you know, we're doing video projects with like $60,000 budgets. So Crazy. that money just doesn't come out of thin air. Like we have to increase our advertising revenue. And some of that is through, uh, sponsored content. Um, which we curate and we select and, you know, sometimes brands bring us stuff that doesn't align with our ethos. And we say, sorry, guys, like we need to like change this to, so that it looks like it's in line with our site. Like I can't be posting, you know, videos of people skidding single track because that's like <laughs> our auto is like shred lightly. So like yeah. shred, shredding lightly, it does not align with <laughs> skidding single track. So yeah. You know, we, we have control of the narrative. I really care a lot about what people think. And so I'll always get in the comments and ask people like their opinions and, 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 and it goes to heart. I mean, sometimes those comment interactions, they get a little heated and it keeps me up at night and um, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to like have passion about something to be empathetic to a community that you've kind of helped foster and to separate those emotions from your, um, your mental health basically. So yeah, yeah, it's like hard not to take stuff seriously or, or personally. Um, but it's also like, you know, I, 
therapy has really helped me like establish like a boundary between that's work and here's life. The problem is a lot of my relationships are intertwined with work. So yeah. Um, yeah. Therapy has helped a lot, but you know, it's always a work in progress, man. Yeah. That's a difficult thing. I think for anybody that's creating content, especially if you're creating your own brand to deal with, like I struggle with that too. It's like every time somebody's like, Oh, it's a shitty opinion or whatever. I'm like, I'll fucking fight you right now. Like I'll, I will get in the comments and I will, but like, and then you have the other side of things where people are like, Oh, don't even engage, but then you don't engage. And then it's like, you're not a real person. Then eventually people stop giving a shit, you know? And that's, that's kind of back to the point you made about like these kind of soul pieces that you guys put out. It's like, that may not get the most clicks, but it actually engages more people more intensely, right? Like that's the stuff that people are like actually remember and they relate to your brand, right? Everybody will click on that Revel Rover review, but it may not be what clicks for everybody, right? An article about depression or an article about mental health or any of those kind of things are just as important, if not more important, in my opinion, for, you know, for the core balances and the core values of a company to kind of go forward. Yeah, and I I think there's like a, the one thing I've learned as as a 41 year old white male in this industry is um having strong opinions results in strong reactions <laughs> and so one of the things i've tried to do a lot over the past I, essentially since i quit drinking five years ago like i kind of had this epiphany where i'm like i don't need an authoritative tone i just need a confident tone and i think mm-hmm. that's one thing that that is like something that can be applied to anyone's life is yes, everyone's got their opinions about everything from like Shram and Shimano to like, you know, is a gravel bike the best platform for riding double track and single track like that, you know, everyone's got these opinions, but like, it can be really polarizing when you're like, you know, blah, 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 this like say carbon fiber sucks for bike (laughs) environmental implications, ride quality, aesthetics aside, like, having an opinion like that then two months later when you ride a carbon gravel bike and you're writing a review about it like <laughs> someone's gonna be like you just said carbon fiber sucks like what are you doing on this carbon fiber bike and so i think that that's kind of like take like turning it back from like an 11 to like a seven in terms of like the authoritative like tone <laughs> it, it really helps um not only for like discourse and for uh approachability but also just for like you know, I'll say this a lot for mental health because yeah, yeah, arguing on the internet with strangers just sucks. Having a discussion on the internet with strangers takes a lot of patience and you, you know, you really have to train yourself to respond to these situations and not just react. Yeah. Yeah. That's a difficult thing. That's I, and that's a thing that I don't think very many people will understand. Like they, especially when they throw those comments out there, they, they just think that they're having their opinion out there. They don't realize that it's impacting somebody on the other end in a very direct way. Yeah. You know, like say like, I just pick any person that is public facing that, right. you know, I hate the term influencer because I think a lot of our athletes are kind of like pushed into these positions where they have to be right. self-promotional in order to make a living. Right. Um, you know, like Alexandra Huchin doesn't have an Instagram account and that's, that's like limiting her, um, uh, her accessibility to sponsorships, which I personally don't agree with, I think is kind of bullshit. Um, And I think the brands that are supporting her, even though she doesn't have a social media account is it like people should be spending money with those brands because it's, it's like 
it's not just a statement against the paradigm, but it's also actual support for someone's actual achievements, not just their like online persona or presence. Yeah. And you know, that said, like I'm friends with Alexandra, I'm friends with Lael and Rue. I'm friends with a lot of people that, you know, Bailey Newbury, Kurt Refschneider, all these, all these athletes all have their own opinions. And yes, there's a lot of type A personalities in the mix, but like we all, um, we're all doing this because we love it. And, you know, things are going to get heated sometimes and people are going to take shit personally. And that's just kind of the nature of it. You know, when you have a lot of passion about something, people are going to take shit personally. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you actually bring up an interesting point where like people should spend money with those brands. Do you think people actually do this often enough? Like where they say, you know, spend dollars with brands that hold values similar to your own or brands that you support, right? Do you think people do this enough or do you think they just buy based on what's easy and convenient? I mean, I, there's definitely like some people that, you know, like propaganda machine of percent for the planet. You got shipped raw materials all over the globe and coal burning ships. And then like, you know, it's, there, there's like a difference between like selling a lot of product and giving 1% for the planet and like a company like Western Mountaineering that continues to make stuff in the U S using right. local material and, and employing local people, you know, like Patagonia used to make all their stuff in Ventura that employed a lot of Americans. And, and, you know, I don't want to get into the, there's right. there, these days, there's a lot of like, you know, I'm not talking down on Asian production. I'm talking down on the virtue signaling of a brand saying they're doing this for the environment. No, you're doing it for capitalism. Like yeah. you're not, yeah. you're doing it for a profit. Like you're not, you know, and, and a lot of brands like make stuff in the U S they build up their, their loyal followers and then they ship production overseas and the price stays the same. So it's like, it's pretty clear what those brands are doing when they do that. Yeah. So for me, I have a very strong conviction that um, I want to buy things that are made prefer preferably in the US or in Europe or in Australia, where there are labor laws that that protect the workers, where there are environmental regulations that protect the earth. Um, that said, I drive a diesel like <laughs> but like, you know, we we can't like all fester in our own guilt spiral of like, you yeah, know, right. Of environmentalism. But I think a lot of people, I think that matters to a lot of people. I think, and in 2020 was like such a polarizing time for cycling where, you know, uh, I remember in 2019, SRAM had a black woman on the, the big ad launching axis. And, you know, they got a lot of shit for that because they like, you know, the, the old timers were like, you're just doing this for virtue signaling. And it's yeah. like, no, I mean, that's kind of the right thing to do. Like you may say that it's virtue signaling, but representation matters, you know, and, and mm. that was a professional athlete that races on tram products that they featured. So um, I th there's definitely a lot of that, like vote with your dollar mentality. And I think that's really important. I've been on the receiving end of like a, a boycott <laughs> because like my views didn't align with the angry mobs views. Right. Um, and, it, you know, it continues to happen, but. Yeah, I think a lot of people actually do, you know, support companies that align with their ethos at this point. And, uh, you know, re reactionary, like online, you know, angry mobs aside, I mean, I think that's a we're in this we're in this like late capitalism uh, or the late capitalist like version of our society now. So and it's pretty clear that 
the political system is aligned in a way that isn't necessarily going to listen to everyone, but everyone's got a dollar and everyone can figure out where they want to spend that dollar. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, last, I got to, last thing before I kind of get into a couple like very targeted questions. Um, what do you think? So I kind of posted online and I tweeted yesterday that I think there's an imminent crash coming in, in bikes and in the bike industry. Like I think it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be in the fall or if it's going to be next spring or whatever. I think people are sick of the, waiting for shit to come in, waiting for bikes, waiting, like being told services out months or like, you know, everything being even like the used bike market is extremely inflated right now. So do you, how do you feel about that? Is that something that crosses your mind at all? I guess, especially it was on my mind because I started seeing bikes being promoted that were nowhere near available. Right. And I think that happened all last year where like bikes were launching and you're like, Oh cool. Can I buy one? fuck no, you can't buy one. So yeah. where are you at on that? Yeah. I mean, as someone that reviewed bikes that and products that weren't available, <laughs> I can say that like, that is, it is a frustration on, on for sure on my part, like the, you know, Shram and rock shocks did that like explore group that had like, you yeah. know, gravel derailleur, a fork, all that stuff. And, you know, they're like, yeah, we're going to have some like the day the embargo drops. So I'm like, okay, cool. Cause I asked those questions. I'm like, is this going to be for, for sale available to people? And then like the day it drops, it's like it either sells out immediately or they didn't have the numbers they thought they would. And then everyone's mad. And <laughs> right. like, why do you get to do this? And so I'm like, oh, it's just, it's, it's kind of never ending in terms of a crash. I don't necessarily think that's going to happen, particularly because brands like Wolf Tooth, and, you know, all these frame builders, white industries, Paul components, like, you know, even smaller shops like engine cycles, they're still making product. Like they actually, I think brands like Wolf Tooth are going to come out larger than they were before because they have had stuff in stock the entire time during this pandemic. Mm. Um, and I think if anything, I would like to think that maybe these bigger companies would realize that putting all of your your production overseas isn't, isn't a sustainable, uh, you know, mindset or business model. Um, I, I truly believe that like, and I would like to hope that more companies will start making things domestically. I mean, hope and Magura both make really kick-ass brake systems in the country of their design origin. And like, you know, the U S doesn't have a hydraulic brake company yet. Like, right. Why don't we have like, and I know there's been run, like there's been rumors of a few companies in the U.S. Uh, making hydraulic brakes, which is awesome. But like drivetrains, like you know, like it's not that hard. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it might be more expensive, but like Ingrid Ingrid components out of Italy, like they've they've had stock this whole time. So yeah. it's kind of like again, it's like paying putting your money where your political views are. Um, and you know, I could just be the old guy shaking his fist at a cloud. Because like, yeah, you know, I've been promoting U.S. manufacturing for a while, but um, yeah, so I kind of would like to think that that the cycling industry will kind of like realize that the the global supply chain system that they've built their their products upon is 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 very weak, and hopefully we'll we'll see a little bit of like diversification in the manufacturing um, uh, process, you know, and and vertical vertically integrating. Uh, manufacturing is really the only way to do it these days. Yeah. So yeah, I, who knows? I don't know. I, I like see it on both sides, right? Like, I guess 
where I think it's going to crash is more like demand for bikes, right? I think people, the people oh, on the yeah. higher end of things, like I think they're going to buy bikes regardless. I think they're they're into yeah. it. They're committed. I more mean like the people that come in and want a bike under 3K, say, right? Because that bike is yeah. so much more expensive now. So I use Santa Cruz as a good example or my scapegoat, I guess, because they're like, they're brutal <laughs> right now. It's going up. It's gone yeah. up 7% in the last three weeks and, you know, 14%, I think it is in the last six months. It's just like when you start adding those numbers, a you know, a D kit bike, which cost 2,500 bucks two years ago is now $3,700. You know, like we're in a totally different ballpark now. And that same accessibility that we kind of talk to or like progression in terms of that new buying a new bike is, I don't know. I feel like people are just over it and I feel like it's yeah. starting to happen already versus the last two years. All you saw was people like, I need a bike. I don't give a fuck what it is. Like we were in, yeah. in my shop we were, it was literally like people would throw their credit card into the shop in the beginning of the pandemic and you just throw them out a bike. Like it was basically as yeah. simple as that. It didn't matter. They're like, do you have a medium? No, you have a large, I'll be a large. Like it was like as, as simple as that. Um, and I think a lot of things were, so I guess I just wonder where that, uh, where that will go. And it's, it's more yeah. of like a thing to be conscious of because I don't know, I know a lot of shops listen to the show and, and there's a lot of bike people that are like kind of thinking about what the next moves are for the industry. And that side of things worries me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I agree. Like, I, I think like with any kind of thing, like what we've seen with a balloon inflating to this size for, you know, let's just throw out a number, say 3 million people picked up cycling in the pandemic. If we can maintain and, and, and hold on to 300,000 of those people, I think that's, that's a good thing. That's um, a win. Yeah. I, I, I often joke that like road cycling is like road cycling could potentially save uh, cycling in the U S because Road cyclists are the most visible or maybe like commuters, people that are on the roads with cars are super visible. And if we see start seeing more and more people on the road with cars, uh, you know, suddenly it's like we're not this like unseen minority when it comes to like uh, enacting change in urban planning, you know. Um, mm. So I and I mentioned that with our with our own uh, local um, kind of urban planners, they the local newspaper did a really good illustration of like a big Dodge Ram pickup truck and this like skinny little roadie on a bike <laughs> sharing the same road. And my critique was, why isn't that like a woman commuting or why isn't, right. why, why are cyclists always represented as like these competitive little like annoying things <laughs> in the eyes of the public when like, you know, plenty of people like this town has such a diverse group of like commuters with like cargo bikes and stuff like that. And people, people using bikes in a, not just for sport, but for transport. And, you know, now that the pandemic seems to be subsiding a little bit, I'm going to have to like increase my efforts to document some of those people to just show that like cyclists are a very diverse group. Um, I think the people that went and bought a brand new mountain bike um, during the pandemic, hopefully they're still riding them. But I ultimately kind of feel like the people that bought commuter bikes are the ones that we really need to cater to. And, and yeah. part of that is just making our streets safe for people to commute. And, you know, I drive, but I also ride my bike and I think there's like a healthy balance just like anything. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and it's not one of those things that I necessarily care about being right about. I just think like it's a, 
it's an interesting topic of conversation because everybody was so go, go, go buy everything as soon yeah. as it comes in yeah. stock. And now everybody's like, uh, especially the spring, you're starting to see it slow down. Yeah. And I think people will pay attention to that more and more, but you're right. There's a lot of positives to it. I think over the last couple of years, people have started to pay attention to cyclists more and more. And I actually tend to think that gravel bikes are a big factor in that just as much, oh, yeah. even more so than mountain bikes, because there's a bike now that you can take and ride wherever the fuck you want, basically, right? You can ride your local single track and ride the bike path. You can ride on the road, right? There's not a lot of bikes that cater to that exact situation, you know? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. As far as like the old skinny white guy, I think, I don't know. I blame Lance a lot for that um, because it's just, I mean, it's just the reality of it, right? Like he was the front facing man in that. So he, I mean, it just made cycling more and more popular. Yeah. Um, okay. Couple pretty targeted questions here. Uh, recently, Lael Wilcox attempted an FKT um, on the AZT. What? Just talk to me about what the story was because she got the FKT by like two hours or something, right? It was. I, I don't. I don't want to. Okay. It, it was whatever. A, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By a lot. Okay. And then, and then they were like, uh, "We're recognizing her attempt." But we're not officially recognized. Like, we're not giving her the FKT. Like, what the fuck does that mean? Okay. So, I think it's important to contextualize this. Okay. Uh, FKTs are fastest known times, right? A lot of trails, like the Cocapelli, for instance, don't have any media rules. Like, you can go out and set your FKT on the Cocapelli and have a full media crew, drones, fucking whatever, e-bike guys documenting your effort and you can sell it off as a commercial to one of your sponsors. And that's totally acceptable. The triple crown series, the CTR Colorado trail race tour divide race and the Arizona trail race are all run by individuals, uh, different individuals, but, but sing singular people that establish the route each year, establish the grand apart, you know, basically just like clear it with like, you know, the various land, like, you know, AZT, like you have to disassemble your bike and walk down into the Grand Canyon and your bike can't touch the ground. It's a national park. The AZTR organizer, however many years ago, cleared that with the national park. It's a special exemption. It's oh. different than wilderness. Wilderness, you cannot have a bike at all. And the law states possession of a bike in wilderness is illegal. So that that's like a very cut and dry thing. The problem is, the paradigm for the modern athlete, like we talked about this a little bit, has changed. Like if, you, if you're an XC mountain bike racer and you're a female and you have 2,000 Instagram followers, the likelihood of you being able to chase after more sponsors and thus more money and thus more, you know, just being able to like, we all have like a finite time that where we can like, you know, use our athleticism or our right. looks or whatever to make a profit. Again, late capitalism. Uh, the problem is if you're if you have ver a very few number of Instagram followers, companies and this is the reality just don't aren't as eager to get you on board versus if you have a larger Instagram uh, influence or or whatever Instagram followers. So the the Tour Divide race back in 2019, Lael Wilcox, you know, was going to have her partner Rue now her wife shoot a documentary of her on the tour divide this caused a big upheaval uh socially there were about four guys i should also point out these were men 
that that made a big stink about it on a tour divide facebook group and then that turned into a big stink on you know social media so this is all like a few months after lay or after rue documented lail and the unbound 200 race racer said she had an unfair advantage you know the journalistic integrity (laughs) should come into this discussion because as a photojournalist, which Rue is, you know, she's done stuff for the New York Times, whatever. Right. She understands you cannot interact with the person you are documenting. You cannot talk to them. You cannot make eye contact. You stay and you observe. Rue and Lael have to do this shit by the books because as you can see, if you pay attention to this stuff, like they are always under public scrutiny. Yeah. So Basically, at, during the tour divide thing, this this media rule got created saying like you can't have a media company documenting uh, your uh, your FKT or whatever, and that was during the Grand Depart. So the problem is, <laughs> there were male athletes that were on the tour divide route with a media crew that somehow like exited this whole thing unscathed without their name even being mentioned on these same public forums. Hmm. So as you can see, like it, it feels like a bias is at, is in place. Yeah. So regarding the AZTR, Lael made an announcement that she was going to go out and try an individual time trial or a fastest no time or whatever you want to call it on the AZTR. And that Rue was going to document her. This was well known. This was not taking place during the grand depart. This was Lael going out on her own on a weekend and just trying to fucking hammer it out. So Rue and the race organizer, I'm not going to mention his name. People know who he is. We're in correspondence uh, on text and on Instagram DMs about this. The organizer said he was fine with Rue documenting Lael around Mount Lemmon and south of Mount Lemmon because Rue lives in Tucson. So, but then he said he had issue with Rue's documentation continuing after that. Fast forward a day or two, go down to picket post where they're starting and the organizer sees Rue there. They're totally friendly. Then the organizer sees Josh Weinberg, our editor at the Radivist there too, and follows up with Josh on Instagram. Basically just says like, who are you and why are you out there? (laughs) So (laughs) Josh asked like, basically Josh approached Rue a few weeks ago and was like, hey, if you guys need any help whatsoever, just let me know. And Rue is like, I would love for you to shoot photos so that I could focus on video. Josh obliged. They go out there. So, yes, the AZTR has had a rule online for the past few years stating no media crew is allowed to document. Um, There's like kind of a vagueness to some of the language. But, you know, that's another discussion for another day. So the organizer emails Rue or texts her and says, like, Basically, if you continue this documentation, Lael's time is going to have an asterisk on it. They both agree that that is okay. Here's, <laughs> this is the issue here. They both say, that's fine. We're out here. We're doing this. We're doing this for, for Lael's followers. We're doing this to inspire. We, you know, we acknowledge the rule. We don't really give a shit. That's not why we're out here. Like, we're just going to do this. We're going to go forward with it. Josh and, and, and Rue did not have contact with Lael at all. They didn't talk. <laughs> Rue texted Lael to make sure she was okay 
with the asterisks because this was happening like during the race and and that was it it was basically you know and i should also say like riders and racers on fkts on the ctr the tdr and the aztr are allowed to call their their loved ones and facetime with them and stuff like that on the course too so this even that text message wasn't breaking any rules so they finish up lail did a really good job she finished very fast and um you know it's an awesome time you can look up the, the data you can see how 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 much she wanted by or whatever there's no denying that what she did was remarkable and i think that's great the problem is the race organizer goes onto his instagram and keep in mind they had already agreed in private that this is an asterisk time it is not during a grand depart so he has no obligation to go on to his social media and say that like Lael finished this time, but she received an asterisk because of the media crew uh, following her like that. In my opinion, I, it, it shouldn't have even happened. Then he comments, we're really upset because Lael or I don't remember what his exact words were, but yeah, we're really it. upset because. Lael received other support from the media crew, which is a fucking lie. No one fucking supported Lael otherwise. And in my opinion, that's where the shit hit the fan because Josh is like, we didn't even talk to Lael. We didn't even make eye contact. Like when you're shooting a racer going by on single track, you're like, you know, 50 yards off the course behind a bush getting like foreground and compression. And it's like people that aren't photographers have a hard time wrapping their head around this. Meanwhile, the whole time, the, the organizer is on the course, hugging, like high-fiving, interacting with, with, with Lael, cheering her on, shooting photos of her, and reporting on her progress, which is essentially media coverage. So there's a little bit of like a hypocrisy going into play here. Um, basically, like he said that he is able to document Lael because he's the organizer I don't really get it. It's not my place, whatever. Like if dude wants to do, he can do whatever he wants. What I'm pissed about is him accusing the Radivist of assisting Lael in other ways, which is total fucking bullshit. And I think it was done in a way to incite this public outcry and to delegitimize the professionalism that Rue has, has constantly shown that she is capable of on courses like this. So that's the main issue. What happened is like a complete clusterfuck of like other people coming in with opinions about media. And it's like, that's great. You know, it's kind of like debating abortion online. And, and I said this to one of my friends who's really big in the ultra endurance racing. You can have your opinions on abortion all you want. If you believe that abortion should be illegal, if you believe it offends God or Cthulhu or fucking whoever, <laughs> whatever deity like Gandalf, like <laughs> that you pray to, that's fine. But the problem is when you go around implementing and forcing your opinions on other and demanding yes. that, that they, they uphold the same fundamentals as you, that's where it becomes gatekeeping. And it's also like in the context of a bunch of white men controlling these rules and like selectively enforcing <laughs> it feels a little misogynistic in my opinion. So um, especially knowing where the rule originated from, which is like Rue documenting Lay on the Tour Divide. Yeah. And then you got guys like going on their Instagram account and, and comparing like like Lael to Mike Hall. And it's like, oh my God. If Mike Hall had a documentary made on his Tr Transamerica thing. And like that's that's great. And Mike Hall is a is a 
he was a fucking badass athlete and it's a shame that we lost him, but you can't go around creating these polarized, uh, these, these polarized like comparisons to just like literally turn people against Lael. Um, so that, that's the gist of it. And I think there's a lot of minutia that there's been a, a whole lot of misinformation. Um, there's been a lot of these ultra endurance guys going around, uh, like making unsubstantiated claims about us as a media organization. Uh, there's been other women that had the FKT previously accusing us of like silencing them. You know, one woman said that we silenced her, but like just a week ago, we had her full story on the AZT posted and like she had our emails and our phone numbers and I didn't know she was upset. And so we responded this morning on Instagram, like, Hey, we didn't know you were upset. You have our emails, you have our phone numbers. Like we paid you to do, to write about your, your FKT experience on the AZTR. So how exactly are we silencing you? And it's just like this, I think a lot of people uh, have been spreading misinformation in a very short amount of time. And you mix that in with like the Amazon prime, like everyone wants justice now mindset and it becomes a very sticky situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it seemed like to me from the outside looking in was like, it, it just seems like so many people are involved and have opinions on this and are like trying to control the narrative that have nothing to fucking do with it, you know? And I was just confused. Yeah. And then I, I agree. Like from my perspective, it was like, it, especially what you're saying now, it, it seems a little hypocritical to be like, Oh, you can't document this, but I can document it because I'm the race organizer. Like that's, I don't know. That seems a little weird and yeah. a very gray area to me. Yeah. Like the race organizer can go on and post Instagram updates, but God forbid for his own game, right? Thing. Like for their like, own personal. Yeah. On his own personal. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. That's insane to me. And look, I get how much work is required in throwing events. Like we've, for thrown, sure. I've thrown a number of events myself. You don't get into like throwing grassroots events to make money. Like you always lose money. Like right. I, <laughs> right. I mean, and, and it's not just a matter of money. I just I, like my biggest beef is this media rule was established as a response to a woman making a statement that she wanted to have her attempt documented. And it just to me, my opinion, I just think rules like that just aren't in line with the current paradigm of athleticism. And that, but that's my opinion. And like other people can say, you know, blah, 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 blah. The rule's important. And I'm like, great. But then you also have a video of your FKT on the Cocapelli trail being documented for a, for right. a commercial. It's like, it's like, is it, is it, is it a moral or an ethical question or is it strictly like bikepacking bootlicking where it's like, yeah. you have to obey the rules. Right. And, and if, and if it is just bikepacking bootlicking and you have to obey the rules in these events, I get that too. But Personally, this is kind of why I don't like racing, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think Lael's accomplishments have inspired a lot of people, and I think For they sure. continue to. And I'm by by uplifting her voice, I am in no way closing down the conversation or the dialogue between other racers. Like we I'm good friends with Alexandra Hoochin. I'm sure she's got opinions about this. I'm gonna reach out to her at a later date to just talk to her about it. Um, you know, we've hosted other female racers, FKT stories. Like I'm all about this. Like I I'm all about having a conversation, but I also am, am very aware of the hypocrisy and the, what I consider like kind of like a bit of a misogynist overtone to the 
um, to the enforcement of this rule. And I, I also like straight up, like you accuse us of cheating somehow or like yeah. aiding and assisting and, and like, that's bullshit. Like, I'm sorry that if, if the organizer had never said that we wouldn't really be in this situation right now. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's like almost what we talked about earlier where it's like people commenting online, except like exacerbated to the extreme where it's like, this is very yeah. personal and very direct and very real life and impacts your business and your like your like your credibility as a as a media group. Yeah, and you know, I had a I had a friend call me and be like, "Hey, just so you know, like someone at another media organization like said that shit's about to hit the fan." So to me, it feels like it's a little bit pers like a personal attack on the radivist. Yeah. Um but I mean, I dude, it's whatever, man. In 6 months people aren't even going to remember any of this stuff like we have a video coming out we have a story coming out we're also doing a follow-up story where uh one of my friends is interviewing other women that are involved in the fkt scene that are gonna talk about how it made them feel and i'm i'm fine with that like that's like i'm all about this like discourse what i'm not about is li creating lies right. to instill distrust and to to sow uh animosity towards uh uh, a, an accomplished female athlete and her professional, you know, photojournalist wife. Right. Um, um, and it's like Rue and Layla are going to keep doing their shit. Like, is all this going to change that? No. Yeah. But now we definitely know who, like now I, I feel like before I think people kept their mouth shut during the tour divide because they didn't want to be looked at differently. But now a lot of people have opened their mouths about the AZTR stuff. And it's like starting to feel like a little different in in some ways um yeah but you know i don't i don't do ultra endurance races if i'm gonna strap a bunch of bags on my bike like i want to enjoy and i'm not saying people don't enjoy it but i, I want to like take my time i want to stop and shoot photos i want to like reconnect with nature you know eat some mushrooms and kind of zone out like that's yeah. that's to me the world is enough of a rat race so my personal experience on a on bike touring is a lot different but that said, obviously, like we care about, you know, bike, bike packing races and stuff like that, because we've been covering them for a while now. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's just kind of a not it's not helping the sport. It's not it's <laughs> not, not encouraging community growth. It's definitely not encouraging new cyclists to enter the sport. And um, yeah, and it's all because a guy decided to go online and accuse us of doing something that we didn't do with no evidence whatsoever. So, yeah. Great. That's amazing. Amazing that this is what the internet is now. It's like you can just go and do that and it causes an uproar because everybody's kind of got their little box that they that they play into. But it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's, you know, and I think like I think Leo and Rue are taking this in stride. You know, obviously they're going to be pretty open about this experience. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, I, and I am too, you know, like I have nothing to hide. I, I don't there's no like you know, agenda, like, like <laughs> right. I barely have like content planned out for a week and like people are, you know, talking about an agenda for the Radivist and it's like, uh, yeah, no, we're not that organized. Thanks. There's only two, <laughs> of them, like yeah. two people doing everything for the website. Like we don't have time for, for like lizard seances and like, you know, right. baby eating blood drinking. <laughs> you know? Oh God. It's yeah, like, it's like how far off are uh, like 
you know, all these like fringe, like QAnon conspiracies, <laughs> and there's, like, all this bike packing, bootlicker conspiracy stuff. And it's just like, oh my God, man. Like, yeah, like not... when, the, when the left goes so far left that it meets the far right and forms an Arabarus. Yeah. Like, it's like, whoa, okay. Yeah, it's it's yeah. amazing how that works. You're starting to see that more and more and more, especially over the past few years. It's it's insane to watch that kind of cycle start to happen over and over and over again. And it's just it's part of life, yeah. I guess. Happens everywhere. Um, all right. Well, last thing I want to ask you about is you tweeted out a while ago about a psychedelic experience that you had. I kind of want to talk to you about what that was like for you. You kind of highlighted it as being therapeutic and helpful and it really helped you. I, I forget the exact words that you used, but like ground yourself basically like, and it yeah, kind of like brought, yeah, exactly. So yeah. what, what was the experience like? What, I mean, how do we feel about hallucinogens as a whole? What, I mean, what's the, what's the deal? Cause you kind of said a 20 minute trip brought everything into focus and I was like, okay, like that's yeah. a crazy way to think about things. Yeah. So I should say, um, I am not, I have no medical license. I <laughs> am not, I am not a scientist. Yep. I have no data to back any of these claims. I've read Michael Pollan's books. I've listened to like various podcasts on it. Um, and I've gone off of the professional opinion of my therapist to say that, um, my experience with, uh, psychedelics, you know, like psilocybin, for instance, has been a very grounding and a very uh, ego removing uh, uh, like experience overall. So uh, I quit drinking five years ago. I have a very unhealthy relationship with alcohol and uh, I, I messed up and I didn't go to therapy and I, I leaned heavily on my partner to, to help me get through it. My friend group at the time had pretty much abandoned me because I didn't drink. And how it became the butts of jokes. So I really just had my partner to help me through it. And six months after I quit, we were out in the desert and we superdosed psilocybin. And it brought up all this like trauma. Like I grew up in an abusive household. Um, won't go into the details, but you know, like being a little kid and, and getting hit and abused is is not fun, right? Um, and I think. I think a lot of that is like trauma from like our parents' generation that they never mm. actually address. And it's just like a perpetuating thing. Um, so, um, but essentially, you know, I've, I've used psilocybin in various experiences on, on, you know, bike tours or just car camping or microdosing, And it has in general been a very therapeutic and positive experience for me. Uh, recently I did a psychedelic that, um, simulates a near-death experience which is what the conversation you're talking about yeah and um you know there there's been a lot of stuff going on in my personal life that that's been kind of been a bummer like we you know we put our dog down recently because he was just getting old and he was in a lot of pain um you know the world in, in general is just kind of like a uncertain place i had skin cancer so you know and and had basically caught it at the last moment before it could have been uh terminal so that's a lot going on and also <laughs> the just the divorcing of my identity from the brand that i've curated for the past uh 15 years or whatever um is is a, another big one so there's a lot of stuff on my mind and um i acquired some of this substance and and i 
researched and figured out the like the way that I wanted to to do it, which is you basically inhale a vapor. And um, I took three really big hits. And on the third hit, I don't remember exhaling. Uh, and I fell back kind of like the only way I could really describe this is if you're sitting in a bar stool in a, in a dark room with no sound, no light, no noise whatsoever. And you just fall backwards on your chair and mm. no one's there to catch you, but you never hit the ground. And that weight that it's not, it's not like, and the other thing I should say is you, you're not consciously experiencing this. It's like your ego. Is, I mean, they call it the ego death, right? So you're, you're essentially falling back and feeling this black void encompass you. And then there's just nothing. It's, it's a, a vacuum, a, a, a mental, spiritual, physical vacuum. And then you are essentially reborn. And it's, it kind of looks like the Millennium Falcon, you know, took off and, and all the streaking lights and, for me, I was transported to a place that kind of looked like a neon Aztecian civilization. So like big temples, big like blocky ziggurats. You're flying through this landscape. The the bricks from the temples started breaking down and forming uh, like elongated eyeballs. And if you if anyone like is familiar with Alex Gray's artwork or the stuff that he did for Tool in the mid 2000s, like um, with the Lateralis album, it kind of looks like that. And then the, these eyeballs, like kind of, again, it's like, you're not, you're not like experiencing it. Like you're walking through the woods because there's, there's the ego thing is still not there. It's like, you're just witnessing something that exists. So you're not saying like, I'm close to this. I can touch it. You're just saying there is something there. Uh, and, and, you know, so it's like, there's no internal dialogue you're just witnessing this. It's like sitting in a movie theater and these eyeballs like form the back of, of a mountain lion. And this mountain lion walks me through this city. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how long mentally we were there. Uh, this whole experience only lasts about 15 minutes. So it's like a really quick trip, which is really interesting. And the mountain lion just kind of repeated the things that you've heard guys like Timothy Leary say, which is like, you know, pain is an illusion. The meaning of life is love. Uh, we're, we're on this earth as like stewards, like we're, you know, our, our existence here is temporal, like blah, 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 you know, the, the united consciousness of humanity. And, and then the crazy thing is it turned to me and said, wake up. <laughs> wake up. And Max is on my chest. Like I'm laying on the couch. So Max is like, he was 16 this was a few days before, like we, you know, we, we took him to the vet to uh, put him down. Max could barely like walk up a six inch step into our house. And somehow he jumped up on top of an 18 inch couch and then jumped on top of me, put his paws on my chest and was licking my face. So I got huh. woken from this experience by my dog, who is essentially his, his lower spinal cord and his legs were fused. Like he has no control over them. Um, and when I ex told my, my partner this, she said that when she experienced the same trip from the same substance, Max did the exact same thing to her. So I think like the overarching 
view that I have about psychedelics is they, they strip away all the noise. They strip away the internet controversy, the nine to five, and they really reconnect human beings with nature. I mean, I've had trips where I'm like laying on a mossy, uh, mossy like bed in a Aspen stand. And I could see the, like this network of like interconnectivity under the ground glowing this like pulsating orange color. I had no idea what that was. And then I, I read a book about, um, about mushrooms, not psychedelic mushrooms, but just the, the life of fungi and, and realized that in the book, they talk about how, how, uh, aspen trees and, you know, conifers, like, you know, ponderosa pine, stuff like that will use these like neural networks of fungi to alert other trees in the forest of like, hmm. you know, beetles or drought or fire. And then those trees will start to produce a sap that is like, you know, that the beetles don't like. So nature has a, 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 a network of communication. And I think as humans have evolved to be more like technologically advanced, we have like stepped away from that immersive reality that essentially like all of this shit is connected. Mm. Um, and we have a big role in that connectivity and that disconnectivity. So um, I awoke from that experience and I still had like pretty strong visual uh, hallucinations for about an hour. And I watched this movie that one of my coworkers had recommended completely like unrelated. He was just like, <laughs> you need to watch Mandy. It's Nicholas Cage. And I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. Nicholas Cage. He's like, no, John, you need to watch it. It's like weird power, violent, like psychedelic experience. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So for some reason I was like, Oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to watch Mandy after having this like experience. <laughs> and the initial scene in the movie is the exact same experience that I had the visuals, the no forming shit. of a mountain lion. And you're just like, Oh, okay. So clearly the people that wrote this movie have also done this, this have had this experience. <laughs> happen and then I fell asleep. Uh, I went to bed at like nine o'clock and I had the most vis visceral uh, dream that this, this like Gemini was kind of rotating through space. So it was like two torsos and it was like in a, in a matrix of like this, like sacred geometry, kind of like flower of life, like Alex Gray bullshit with like all these eyes spiraling in the center. And, you know, this being was like, kind of like, you know, an anatomy doll. So it was like all muscles, like tendons were exposed, skeletal systems were exposed, but these eyeballs were like moving through the muscular network. And it was basically just telling me the meaning of life is love. Pain is an illusion, you know, be nice to those who are like, you know, just basically be a nice person and, and love people. And, um, and so I woke up the next morning and Googled like, you know, what I saw and found an exact illustration of what I had seen along with a whole explanation about what that means. And essentially like I had super dosed this, this drug by mistake and <laughs> broke through to another realm of, of experience. So de Holy depending shit. on the dose of this material, you can have a very like light and airy, like hallucinogenic visual experience. You can have the ego death and you can have this like spiritual awakening. So I woke up that morning and I had a meeting with my therapist and she was just like, like literally said, Holy shit, you look like a completely different person. Like my, she's like, you don't have the weight, the, like the emotional weight on your face anymore. You don't have this like, 
this like the world's out not the not that i was like the world's out to get me but it's like oh man like it's been really hard this year like all this crazy yeah, right. shit keeps happening and i just had it just made me feel so like so pure and so connected um like i i don't even know how to describe it it's like it's like you have like a near-death experience and you realize like how precious life is well this is more like you you have this experience and suddenly you, the world is more vibrant um i still get like you know trailing visuals uh when i'm uh like just even if i just smoke some weed like it'll it'll hit me where it's like really? the tree bark is like breathing yeah and it's really crazy um but you know and i just feel like the villainization and guys like timothy leary definitely didn't help right um <laughs> You know, but like the the first acid trip was a bicycle ride. Like, how fucking cool is that? Like, right. <laughs> the guy that developed LSD took it and then went to ride his bike. Like, like if if the world was more open minded about these natural substances that exist, right. and if the world is so willing to like believe in these religions where the, those people were clearly on drugs, um, down to like you know studying civilizations like this Aztecian kind of Mayan city that I saw, like who knows how long that has been part of the collective subconscious and who knows, you know, were, were those people doing ayahuasca? Probably. Were they, were they like licking the Sonoran desert toads? Probably. And like, I'm not about that. Like, I feel like, <laughs> I, I feel like the, the, you know, leave toads alone. Like, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't go licking desert toads. Um, but like, you know, I really do feel like there is something in our subconscious that modern life has completely clouded and people would be happier. The world would be a better place. And, you know, of course I sound like a sixties love, you know, well, man, just fucking love everybody, bro. But it's like, yeah. Um, I, I really feel like the more society uh, learns about these, these substances, the more they're going to understand humanity as a whole. And um Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's funny, like psilocybin is similar to what you described in a lot of ways, but it's different in the sense that you kind of, you're very actively experiencing it, right? Like you're yeah, very yeah. aware that it's happening the whole time. Like you're like watching yourself kind of go through these different stages where it sounds like with this, it's, you're not, you're like almost completely separated from yourself. Yeah, you're, you're like, I shot a video of, of me doing it and like, I look like I'm sleeping and my eyes are like doing like, darting all around no shit yeah i mean like if i go on a bike tour i'm gonna be on psilocybin right and and you know what like you can you can definitely tell from some of the photos you're like whoa that's (laughs) crazy like but like psilocybin has like all all of these you know lsd like whatever they all have their own unique uh palette of experiences psilocybin to me is about seeing the patterns and and the uh, interconnectivity in nature um, the, the visuals I see are usually very geometric and very, um, I don't even know, like fractal almost, you know, that this other experience was way more organic, like swoopy lines and like Hmm. elongated mouths and, you know, like the walls were talking to me and it, it felt more powerful and it felt older. Um, and it felt like it was, it, I was like tapping into like, a subconscious within the human experience more so than tapping into nature saying, Hey, check me out. Hey, stop what you're doing. Sit down on this little 
mossy seat and look what I can show you with my leaf structure. You know, it's like psilocybin for me is like, like the sacred geometry stuff, like the, like the golden section, the, you know, from Mies van der Rohe to like, you know, like Da Vinci, like these guys understood this. And I, I mean, maybe they got into some moldy bread or something or like wanted to eat some cow shit one day. But I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the bands that we love, I think a lot of the writers that we love and uh, honestly, a lot of the religions that we love are all based on a psychedelic experience. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that's, it's a total, it's funny that not very many people actually think that way or not enough people I think are aware that this is right. They'll love these bands. They'll love these writers or artists and they'll not make that connection that that's a part of it, right? Like having experiences like that is a part of that creation. Yeah, it's like the Bill Hicks line where he's like, if you think drugs have done something bad, take all those albums, all those CDs, all those cassettes that you love, take them home and burn them because all that music that we've spent our entire <laughs> lives listening to, guess what? They were real fucking high on drugs. And, and I, I, you know, it's, I grew up in the D.A.R.E. era, you know. Right. Like, uh, the first time I took acid, I rode my brakeless track bike through New York City and went and stared at a T-Rex skeleton in the Natural History, History Museum had no idea why I was so connected to this T-Rex skeleton, told my mom about it. And she was like, oh, when you were two years old, we took you to that museum. You walked in the front door, saw the T-Rex skeleton, screamed and left the museum. And we had to go to <laughs> Central Park. And I was like, well, as a 30 year old dude or whatever, 29 year old person, like I, for some reason, I went back to that exact same spot and just sat there, like stared at this skeleton. So huh. I, don't, I don't know, but yeah, it's um, yeah, it it's still like I get goosebumps when I talk about it, and it is just made me, it's made me feel complete. And modern society wants to, you know, whatever people drink, and that's fine. But like, alcohol is a poison, and it's way really worse. Bad for yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and it's like everyone accepts it, and you know, and I promoted it too. Like I'm not guilty, but as, as a human, I grew and I, I want to share that gro growth uh, experience, but like, you know, th these psychedelics come from nature. And I think, I think if anything, they would do a lot more, um, more good for humanity than harm. That said, if you have like, you know, I have to say this, if you have an experience, if you, if you have any kind of like schizophrenic, uh, any kind of emotional or mental health issues, do not do this shit unless you're doing it with a doctor or a guide. Um, set and setting is huge. Michael Pollan wrote an amazing book about it. Mm. Um, and, you know, essentially the TLDR was that psychedelics help people that are like lying on their deathbeds cope with the idea of death and anything that does that and gives people peace, peaceful passing and also peaceful existence is okay in my book, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Same. It's yeah. It's an interesting it's an interesting thing to think about. It's an interesting thing to explore, but for sure, like I think setting is everything and kind of being aware that it, you know, it actually is one of those things. It's not for everybody, right? It's, it's for a lot of people and it is potentially for more people than are, than are using it. I would definitely say it's for more people than are using them, but it's, it's not for everybody and people should definitely be, be cautious of that. I guess it's like, we are glorifying this yeah. in a sense, but be, be aware that neither of us are doctors or, you know, it, yeah. we're not giving advice here. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, don't don't go around licking snoring desert toads because those. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, like, I can't imagine why anybody would actually want to. I mean, I'm sure. Yeah, I don't I don't even want. Well, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, 
I like, yeah, I'm a big fan of this author, Craig Childs. And in one of his books, he like uh, says that he sees this beautiful rattlesnake and he's staying at a friend's house in Tucson and that it was like slithered right past him as he was like sitting on a rock writing or whatever. And he really wanted to touch the snake. And then he remembered a sign he saw in Mexico at some animal sanctuary that was like, you know, no molestar la fauna. Oh my like, God. Yeah, that rattlesnake doesn't want to be touched. And that toad doesn't want to be touched. Yeah. So just like, leave them alone. And yeah. Leave the like, toads alone. Yeah. Leave the toads alone, man. They just want to <laughs> eat bugs. Oh yeah. man. I think that's a great place to end it. Um, where, uh, where can people find you online? Where can people connect with you more? Where can people find the Radivists? Give me, give me all the plugs. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, we're www.theradivist.com, uh, at the Radivist on Instagram. Um, my personal Instagram account is at John Prawley. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't know how much longer I'll be on Twitter now that Elon Musk. Are you going to quit? So I don't know, man. Like he's talking about making it private and I just, I'm like, you could have ended world hunger and instead you bought Oh, it. dude, that part annoys the shit out of me. Like he could have, I saw somebody yeah. tweet out, like he could have given everybody in America a million dollars and still have $7 billion left. And I was like, what the fuck? Like that part's crazy to me. And there's so many like yeah. good tweets and memes and bullshit that comes out of it. But at the end of the day, that part's yeah. kind of shitty, but I like Twitter. Yeah. Twitter's my favorite medium. <laughs> like it's, I, 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 like, I like Twitter too. It's taken me a while as a visual person to get used to it. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, I've said like some things where I, I'm like, oh, whatever. No one gives a shit. And then it blows up and it's like suddenly, yeah, you know, it's I think it's a good I, I think it I think it had a really important place in like uh, journalism, uh, especially in 2020. Yeah. Um, I just get I, when people start yelling and arguing about shit, it's just like it's really hard. It's hard to have like a discourse and to have heated discussions online in general. Um so their yeah. mute button, this is like the only thing I'll say about that is their mute button works so fucking good, right? Instagram's mute I'm button sure, still yeah. shows up, but like the mute button, as soon as I'm like, fuck you, like I'm over this conversation, yeah, I hit that mute button. Or even if it's somebody that bothers me for my own reasons, like, and I just don't like them and what they're doing and I don't want to unfollow them. That mute button is amazing because you yeah. don't have to be a I've, dick. I've muted a few people on Instagram too. Oh. It definitely has. Dude, it's great. Yeah. I, I abuse that shit all the time. I try not to do it too much, yeah. but I abuse it. Um, and John Prawley on Instagram, John Prawley on Twitter for as long as you're there, theradivist.com. Um, John, thank you so much. This has been great. Um, and yeah. Ethan, I'll, it's been great, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm honored, man. Thank you. Of course.